very much for coming out tonight. It's a treat to be down here. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about King Tut, who else? Um, and there have been a lot of talks here about King Tut over the last few weeks. And uh, those of you who have been coming and have been, been to the show and read all the books, you know an awful lot about this. And you've probably seen all kinds of television shows about him. So I'm going to look at a few odd bits and pieces that I hope will be interesting to you. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's see if we can go on. Now, the subject, really, I've got two subjects tonight, but they really, it all really comes down to order and chaos. This is a very famous picture of King Tut uh, from one of his uh, boxes. And you see him here hunting, and he is uh, hunting people. I think you can probably see that from out there. Um, he looks just the same when he's hunting critters. But in this case, he, there are Nubians and there are uh, Syrians. Now, why go and beat up all those poor Nubians and Syrians? What have they done to him? Well, nothing, probably. Uh, the whole idea is that they are foreigners. And foreigners are just sort of, by definition, kind of dangerous and shifty, and you never know what they're up to. They are chaotic. They do not live in Egypt. They do not live under Ma'at. Ma'at is justice and truth and the right way to do things. And the Egyptian king's most important job is, in fact, to maintain Ma'at, and to offer ma'at, to offer goodness and truth and justice back to the gods. And I think this is one of the reasons we all like the Egyptians so much. Uh, we sense this in them, this commitment to justice, which you don't always see in ancient history. You don't always see that commitment to fairness. And they're always trying to deal with chaos and order. How do you get a balance? How do you get the world back in shape when the world has gone out of shape? Now, Tut himself is a very good example of both chaos and order. We look at the beautiful golden face mask and all that lovely stuff, and we call him the Golden King. And he is the Golden King. It's beautiful. His face is lovely. Everything seems to be perfectly balanced and orderly. And yet, if you look at his poor old mummy, uh, uh, up, even upstairs in the show, there's a little discussion at the end of some of the theories that he's murdered. And up at the um, other place where I work, um, every child who comes in says, was King Tut murdered? How was King Tut murdered? And most of them know how he was murdered. Um, and why, why are we so fascinated with the idea of him being murdered? Um, I've just taken a few books off the internet. Uh, I could have filled the screen in six more. There's a zillion books about the murder of King Tut. And there are a zillion websites explaining in great detail how and why King Tut was murdered, and even who done it, which is kind of interesting. Um, here are the usual suspects. Um, you can see, uh, it's a terrible, Maya, look at this lovely man in the white statue with his beautiful wife, Merit. Uh, Maya, the bureaucrat, and he's supposed to have done it. He was uh, a man who came up under King Tut's father. He was a, pretty much a self-made man and he became treasurer of the country. And I think rather than being King Tut's murderer, this is the man who made sure King Tut had the most beautiful burial he could possibly have. I think this is the man who put all that nifty stuff in the tomb. I think we owe him a great uh, vote of thanks. There is Anki Sanamun, uh, King Tut's wife. Uh, lots of people suggest she bumped the poor kid off. Um, now, there may be a little more justification here. Uh, she would have been at least 10 years older than he was. Uh, so you can imagine... Uh, all you ladies, when you were 19 and absolutely at the height of your beauty and gorgeousness, being told that you were going to marry your 10-year-old half-brother. <laughs> you get to be queen, um, but it is a kind of an icky job, but somebody had to do it. And um, I suspect she did it very well. Poor lady. 
Uh, over on the other side, in the big statue standing beside the god Amun, is uh, Horemheb, General Horemheb, and he's a very popular uh, candidate for the murderer of King Tut, um, even though he also is a really fine guy, and he spends his whole life trying to bring order out of chaos and trying to get Egypt back in line again. Uh, King Tut's father, whom you heard about last week from um, uh, Ron Leprahan, uh, did not run the country very well, the famous Akhenaten, and the country really was a mess when he was finished with it. And King Tut's a nine-year-old kid. Everything that we think is done in his name was probably really Horemheb. And Horemheb ruled after that for maybe 20 years, maybe longer. And what he had to do was to reinstate all the judges in the country. He had to have all the law books recopied. Can you imagine a country without law books? And this is the man who made sure that every town had the law books and had all the case law, the precedents. That's how Egyptian law worked. So I don't think this is a murderer. And finally, some people suggest I, that nice gentleman at the bottom, who is probably King Tut's granddad. Um, if we had his mummy, Zahi Hawass would know by now if he was King Tut's granddad. Um, but I think he is, or uh, certainly a member of the family. Now, why do we do this? Well, um, there's also a possibility King Tut just died in a car accident, or a, a chariot accident, as the case may be. He was a 19-year-old kid. 19-year-old boys like speed. Uh, if you've ever looked at the Egyptian chariots, they are incredibly flimsy things. And imagine barreling over the desert in pursuit of a lion or a gazelle uh, in one of those things. It's a recipe for disaster. Um, and you could certainly follow that and hit your head or break your ribcage or do anything you liked. Um, but Dr. Hawass has decided this is not what happened. Dr. Hawass says he was not murdered, as many people thought. He had an accident while hunting in the desert. Falling from a chariot made this fracture in his left leg, and this really is my opinion, how he died. Now, that's what he said in 2006, and the, um, I'm afraid this has changed my font. So you may miss a couple of letters, but this was, I think, 2007. Uh, Dr. Hawass said that, and we'll see if that has held up. Uh, I always liked the chariot accident myself. It seems to me the kind of thing a 19-year-old boy would do to himself. And for a long time, um, it looked as though his rib cage was missing. And I thought, oh, he you know, fell out of his chariot, got run over by the horses. I mean, this really worked for me as a story. Um, it appealed to my sense of chaos. Now, then you have to ask, well, what, what is the evidence for all these things? We've got all these theories about King Tut, what he was like, uh, what his life was like, what his death was like. What's the evidence? And the real question, I think, is what a friend of mine used to always say, what is information? Uh, you know yourself, you look something up, and you think you've got an answer to something. And then a friend of yours will say, oh, no, actually, uh, last Tuesday they did a new test, and you're completely wrong. Um, and you may have had this yourself. Uh, you go to the doctor. And you have a, a, a CAT scan for some innocent reason. And they come back with very long, serious faces saying, um, we're going to have to do an MRI. There's a, a very large mass somewhere or other. And it's probably deadly. And uh, it's too bad. You're a nice person. And you say, oh, my god. And then, of course, they do the MRI. And they, oh, it was nothing. It was a shadow. <laughs> and you're reprieved. And yet very good doctors using very good equipment told you you had a strange mass somewhere or other. And equally nice doctors say, oh, no, it was just a shadow. Who are you supposed to believe? What is information? What is evidence? And when you're looking back 3,500 years or 3,400 years, these questions get really important. Uh, now, when we're looking about ki at King Tut, 
and looking for the kind of evidence. There are such kinds of evidence we can look at. There's the archaeological evidence. What has been dug up by good, solid archaeologists that can actually tell us about him? Uh, there's literary evidence. Have we got any texts, either by him or by his friends, that tell us what he was like and what he was about? Uh, we've got all these new medical examinations. Uh, the first medical examinations just eyeballing him. Uh, from then on, x-rays, CAT scans, now DNA, and there's even an interesting little bit of botanical evidence uh, that may give us a hint about what happened to King Tut or when it happened. Now, these are some of my friends, uh, and I do wish they were here tonight to help. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you'll notice on, on most of these, uh, uh, these lovely CSI shows, and, and Bones, who is my very favorite, um, they often start off with one hypothesis. You know, this is a 27-year-old uh, Chinese man who died after being fed through a shredder. Um, and then they find out, no, no, it's a 43-year-old uh, African woman, and she died after being mauled by a lion. And, and the, the story goes on all night, and finally you find out who it really was, and frequently who done it, which is the fun part. But I think the reason we love these stories is they are trying to bring order out of chaos. Uh, because what could be more chaotic than the murders, especially the murders on these shows, which get very chaotic. But that's chaos. That's what threatens us all, this sudden death from nowhere. That's chaos. And we would all like to have ma'at. We want this closure. We want to know what happened, why it happened, where it happened, how it happened. That's what we need to know in order to go on with our lives. Because we can't believe, we can't live if we think everything is chaos and everything is just random chance. We have to think that there are ways of solving problems. And I think that's why we like these guys. And maybe that's why we like the Egyptians, too. Now, here's some botanical evidence, a rather odd bit of stuff. Um, uh, the large thing is a collar, uh, and you'll notice there's a collar like it around the outer coffin. This is the outmost coffin of King Tut. Um, these collars are really interesting. At an Egyptian banquet, you were given one of these, very much the way you're given a lei when you get off the plane in Hawaii. And these were on a, they're, they're on a backing of papyrus. So you cut a big chunk of papyrus, and then you sew onto it or probably your servants do, or some professional sews onto it, um, berries and leaves and flowers. And what you want is a mixture of things that really smell nice and things that are highly medicinal. And that's kind of an interesting mixture to try and get. One of the most popular things in these um, uh, collars is blue water lilies. People always call them blue lotuses. The lotus does not grow in Egypt. Water lilies grow in Egypt, very important point. Um, I have a friend, Claire Ocean, who's a botanist and a geologist, and if you say the word lotus, it's terrible what happens to you. So <laughs> just don't ever say it. Just cut the word out of your vocabulary. Uh, but blue water lilies are quite wonderful things. They bloom in the morning. Uh, they don't bloom right at dawn. It takes them a while, but by 9 o'clock in the morning, they're open, and they start closing again later in the evening, and they're completely closed by sundown. And what's terrific about blue water lilies is they have the most wonderful scent they are just entrancing. And even when they're dried, they have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful smell. So if you were wearing one of these collars around your neck, and that was one of the main elements, and it always was, you would just smell wonderful. Uh, they would also put the blue water lilies in their wine. And uh, there used to be a thought that it was some kind of really nifty hallucinogenic buzz thing. Um, it's not. Um, it, it's about as um, hallucinogenic as ginkgo. 
So if you get high on ginkgo, water lilies will do it for you. Uh, but you know, ginkgo gives you a little lift in some way, and probably the blue water lilies did too. And there's oh, usually olive leaves, uh, and they're folded often into little squares, uh, all kinds of berries. And by the, the um, assemblage and what's in it, you can tell what time of year it was when the collar was worn. Uh, the collar that you see on in color was actually worn at King Tut's funerary feast. Eight people sat down outside of his tomb and had a feast, I guess after he was finally sealed in and safe. We have no idea who they were. Uh, and if you want to write a novel about it, there's an interesting place to start. That funerary feast with eight people sitting in these beautiful collars. And when the feast is over, you take it off and it goes in the garbage, uh, which in ancient Egypt was a big jar. And all the stuff gets stuffed in a jar and it all gets put in a little hole in the ground. And if you're really lucky, somebody comes along 3,300 years later and finds it. That's where it was found. And it is like the one that's around his neck. But one of the very sweet things about it is that just around the urei, the, the snake and the vulture who's on his head, you may just be able to see a little twist of flowers, uh, corn flowers and olive leaves. And it looks like something that somebody actually made. It's not one of these big professional things. It's just a little thing. And um, Howard Carter had always thought that perhaps Ankesen Amun had put that on at the last minute. Whoever did this, it's a little last minute token of affection and fondness for this young man who's died so, so unexpectedly. So beautiful little thing, but the fact that the, of the kind of flowers these are, um, you get mummified and it takes about 70 days. And if you add 70 days and think, okay, these flowers are blooming, 70 days behind that is going to be January and December in Egypt, which was the time of year for hunting. So if you want to think that he fell out of his chariot, this is not bad evidence uh, for that, that he was out hunting and had some kind of accident. And we'll see if that holds up. But there's an interesting, odd little bit of evidence. Now, there's another kind of thing going on here. You can see the little, there's that little bit of flower from uh, Ankesen Amun or from whoever. The nice color pictured is uh, Ankesen Amun, Tat's wife, uh, giving him some flowers, and she's giving him the blue water lilies, uh, which are beautiful to smell, so they're symbols of freshness and, and uh, this reopening every day. They, they live in the water, they come up, they bloom in the sun, like all of us sleeping at night in the waters of our unconscious and then coming up in the morning. Uh, and also mandrakes, uh, which are usually have sexual symbolism. So something that smells good and gives you a little kick of energy and these mandrake roots, this bouquet of flowers she's offering him actually says the same thing that a box of heart-shaped chocolate says, which is very nice. Uh, but notice King Tut, who is a young man, is leaning on a cane in this picture. And does he need it, or is it just the fashionable thing to do? Uh, now, the most important thing about King Tut uh, is really that we have his body. And in a murder investigation, you've always got to have a body. That's very important. And the body was found in KV-62. KV just means King's Valley the Valley of the Kings, uh, Kings Valley 62, um, and the tombs were numbered in the order they were found. So, the, you know, the next one will be 64 when they find it. So we're up to 63. Uh, and it was in his sealed burial chamber. Everything there is his. He was in, within three nested coffins. There's no question that that is the body of Tutankhamun. Now, in terms of 
history, and especially the kind of history that we can now write with DNA and blood grouping and all the other scientific stuff, it's really important to have one absolutely fixed point. We know who this guy is without a doubt. So you've got everybody else who can compare them to him because there's no question who that body is. There are a lot of royal bodies out there. Uh, uh, we have most of the royal bodies from the uh, New Kingdom from the period of about 15, actually 1600 till about 11, 1045. We've got most of the royal bodies. That's an astonishing thing. You can look on the face of Ramses the Great. You can look on the face of Seti I. We can look on the face of Tutankhamun. Um, but a lot of those bodies had no names by the time they were found. And so you look at the body and you make a guess and you make a good guess based on various things. But you're always guessing. But in this case, we know. Now, here's a mummy we had to guess about. Uh, this mummy was left on the floor of KV60, which is a very small place, kind of like a downtown waterfront condominium, you know, that size. Um, and uh, KV60, and it was found by Howard Carter in 1903. Howard Carter went in and he found two women's bodies on the floor one in a coffin, and the coffin said it belonged to Satre, the wet nurse of Hatshepsut, the great woman king. Pretty exciting and interesting, I think. Um, and there were also some mummified ducks. And guess what Howard Carter took out of the tomb? He took the ducks. <laughs> he took the ducks. Ducks. And um, put them in the Cairo Museum and left the two ladies lying on the floor. I don't understand that one at all. Um, but in recent years, people remembered this woman who was supposed to be the wet nurse of King Tut, uh, uh, pardon me, of Queen Hatshepsut, King Hatshepsut, and uh, went back and looked at her. And here she is. Uh, the suggestion is maybe one of these bodies really was Hatshepsut. One was the nurse, and one was the woman king. So here is Azahiawas, and I think Dr. Salem um, examining uh, the body that might or might not be Hatshepsut, off the floor and down at the Cairo Museum. And they found some interesting stuff about her. She was a woman in her 60s. That's the right age for Hatshepsut. Uh, she was very, very chubby. And Dr. Hawass didn't like that at all. I guess he likes his ladies slender. And um, he was very offended that the great woman king might have been, he, he thought her breasts were too big. Um, we all have our tastes in these matters. Um, <laughs> And she didn't fit his, so he kept saying, no, no, it can't be her, it can't be her. But uh, you'll notice that nice little colored box on the bottom. That box was found in a cache of royal uh, mummies, a place we call uh, Deir al-Bahri 320, DB 320. And it has Hatshepsut's name all over it. And inside were some bits and pieces of Hatshepsut. And they are all sort of glued together by resins and guck. And nobody has really opened this box because it looks kind of nasty. Who's going to go in there? But Nowadays, we can CAT scan things. And if you CAT scan it, you find out that in with all the other guck is a tooth. And that tooth is a molar. And it just happens that that lady, the chubby lady, was missing exactly that molar. So who else's tooth would be in Hatshepsut's box except Hatshepsut? So the woman who's missing the tooth is probably Hatshepsut. At least, that's what Zahiawas has decided. So the woman king whom you see in the lovely statue from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and this rather sad-looking mummy, um, the same woman. Now, she died at 60. Her uh, only daughter had died before her. She had reason to look sad. Um, but on the 
Grounds of evidence. What a flimsy bit of evidence that is. This body is in the tomb of the wet nurse of the woman king, and she's missing a tooth, and there's a tooth in the box. They haven't taken the tooth out of the box. Uh, and all they've got are pictures of x-rays. So you take an x-ray, you cut the picture out, and you stick it on a picture of the jaw. This will not stand up in a court of law. And I don't think either Bones or uh, Grissom would take this. They would want a little more evidence. So we've got Hatshepsut, but have we got Hatshepsut? I don't think so. Um, but here's a mummy we might have now. Uh, this is the mysterious mummy of KV-55. And you'll notice there a coffin really badly smashed. KV-55 is just 100 yards from King Tut's tomb. It's just down the way. Um, and you'd never see it when you're in the Valley of the Kings because it's all closed up. But inside that coffin was a mummy. And it was a very, very strange mummy. That's a very, very strange coffin. It's a very fancy coffin. Uh, the Supreme Council of, of, Antiquities, of Antiquities in Egypt has fixed it up. And it's now on display in the Cairo Museum. And it's pretty spiffy. It's obviously a, a Rolls Royce of coffins. But um, the head has been taken from another coffin and stuck on it. And the head has a wig on it, such as no other coffin in Egypt has. So you think, where the heck did they get this head? It's got a particular kind of wig that a lady named Kia, uh, who used to live, uh, who was one of the wives of King Tut's father, Akhenaten. This is the kind of wig she wore. So who's in this box? Um, there's no name on the box. Uh, I'll see if my laser pointer is working. Yeah, right there. Once upon a time, there was a king's name in a cartouche. And someone chopped it right off. And in fact, all through this body, there were all kinds of places uh, where there should have been a name on the coffin and on various wrappings of this body. The name had been cut out every single time. So somebody didn't want us to know whose body that was. Um, very odd coffin. It's got a royal uraeus, which says this is a king's coffin, but it's wearing this wig that belongs to a secondary queen. The body inside is wrapped in a very strange way. Kings, they are wrapped like this. Every 10-year-old every boy knows that. Every 10-year-old girl knows that. Nine-year-old girls, 10-year-old boys, they all know it. <laughs> um, but if you are a queen, you get wrapped like this. And this body is wrapped like this. Not only that, uh, whatever was on its head has been removed. And one of those gold collars that they wore around their necks, this one shaped like a vulture, has been taken off its sheet gold and squished around the head to make a kind of a crown. Now, queens wear vulture crowns, not kings. But this is a man's body. So what's going on here? Uh, something very strange is happening with this coffin and this mummy and this whole burial. Um, and I mean, think of the novel you can write about this. Um, you know, this is, this is good stuff. Now, there is the skull that comes out of that coffin. Um, the, the coffin, as you see, was badly smashed. The tomb was not in good shape. And when the body was taken out, um, they always say the body fell to pieces. It always means we didn't take enough trouble to get it out straight. But it's 1907, I think, and the body did fall to pieces. There is the skull, and I've met this skull in person. It's a really kind of creepy skull. Um, uh, but very definitely a male skull, no question of that. And uh, you can see but the very, very pronounced superorbital ridges here, very male. 
but in other ways, a rather oddly gracile, very graceful uh, body. Uh, not much of a mastoid process back here, which on most men is much more pronounced than that. And the back of the head, uh, the neutral crest, which is usually present on men and is where those nice big shoulder muscles you guys all have attached in at the back of your head. This guy didn't have very good shoulders. Um, so it's definitely a male body. Um, and, and the teeth, those teeth aren't too bad for somebody who's that old. So you've got a very strange coffin, very strange body, and ever since it was found, people have been arguing about who it was. Um, the first time it was found, uh, people said it was a woman's body, and it was a man's body. It's had a lot of, uh, a lot of opinions. But nowadays, with CAT scans, uh, the CAT scan of King Tut's skull has been compared with this CAT skull, and you notice they are very similar, this odd shape. Uh, very flat on top, very platycephalic, and yet not too narrow, not too delicocephalic, a very odd shape. Neither one has much of a mastoid process. Neither one has much of a neutral crust at the back. Very similar. Uh, and the craniofacial morphology is pretty close. Uh, you inherit your f facial structure from both parents in a very complex way, uh, which is why people at a... Um, um, a family gathering always say, oh, you look just like Uncle George. No, she doesn't. She looks just like Aunt Harriet. No, and everybody has an opinion. Because, in fact, you do look like all those people. We do look like all of our relatives. Um, and King Tut does look an awful lot like this skeleton. Uh, there are other similarities in the skeleton, and they share the same blood group. Uh, they're both type A. Now, most ancient Egyptians, who knows most? How many have we tested? Um, but many of the, those we have tested are type B, which is what you would sort of expect for an African population. These guys are A, and they have the serum group MN. This is the same blood group I happen to have, and I think this proves that they are both Irish. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, so they, whoever these two are, they are first-degree relatives. That means they're either father and son or brothers. So we're getting really close to being able to say who that body in the tomb is. Does King Tut have any brothers? He has a father. Everybody has a father. And uh, it now looks, because we know the body in KV-55 is very close to King Tut in all kinds of ways, um, is it King Tut's father? And if it is, it's Akhenaten, the man who was the first king to say there's only one god. Um, although, as I'm sure most of you know, he said there's only one god, and I'm the only one who can talk to him which is not quite the same thing as monotheism. Um, now, here's how he was tested, though. They did a DNA test for paternity, uh, as we do now eh, in, in, uh, in our courts all the time. And they used one called paternity likelihood W, uh, which is a probability thing. And it compares the likelihood that this tested person uh, is the parent of that child, rather than uh, any other person who happens to be around. I'm very sorry for this uh, change in font. Didn't realize that would happen. Um, now, this is a statistical probability. It's not a certainty. Um, and if you want one of those tests done nowadays, they will actually ask you about the target populations. Um, is this an Irish kid looking for an Irish father? Or is this a Chinese father looking for a Chinese son? Because uh, there are a lot of variables in the alleles, in the DNA, and, and they vary from population to population, so it's kind of nice to know what kind of thing you're looking for. We know next to nothing about this population of ancient Egyptians. Um, how many people did we test to see if they could be King Tut's father? Uh, we know that this royal family was terrifically inbred. 
Uh, so we know this person could be King Tut's brother or his father. And a lot of people are wondering about first cousins and uncles. And it really comes down to which set of experts are you believing? The people who say, uh-uh, this is a really good solid test, or the people who say, I would not accept that in my court. I would not say that this man has to pay child support just on the basis of that. So interesting stuff. What is evidence? What is information? But here's uh, Dr. Hawass with the body. And uh, you could ask him about in two weeks what he thinks. Uh, he is quite convinced that this is Akhenaten. And actually, so am I. I'm convinced it's Akhenaten. But I don't think we've proven it. You know, it's like certain murder investigations. You think, yeah, he's the one who did it. But you've still got to prove it. And I don't think we've quite proven this one yet. But for Tad himself, there's a lot of evidence gathering. You can see on the far side of the screen there all the different nested coffins and a picture uh, of them as they were opened. The beautiful golden coffin, the three, what is it, 3,000 pounds of solid gold, it had eyes. It had inlaid eyes when it was found. But there was a lot of moisture in the coffin, and the eyes uh, could not be saved. They had really decayed so much uh, that they were taken out. I wonder where they are. But uh, that, that was not meant to have those blank eyes. So there he is. Now, how do you get him out of there? Howard Carter really wanted to do this properly. He was a very, very fine archaeologist and a really modern, careful man, a, really, a fanatically careful man. And he wanted to get the body out and see, and, and they wanted to learn everything they could. Now, as you can see from the picture there, once you we're down now to the gold mask and some other things, but look how black that is. That's linen. And that is not the color linen is supposed to be. Um, it is black, it's brittle, um, very nasty stuff. And the body is stuck into the coffin, into the bottom of the coffin, um, because at the funeral, people had poured libations on it. And not just a couple of drops of wine, as a Greek or Roman would, but uh, lots and lots of resins. Now, think about resin, something like varnish. Um, it goes on liquid, but it eventually dries. And once it dries, it dries solid as a rock. Uh, amber is just resin, eh? Um, so this is like stuck in there with amber. So how do you get him out? Question number one. But for forensics, why did they use so much? Uh, they didn't bury people this way normally. Why were they pouring all this guck on King Tut? Uh, some people have suggested that one of the reasons there's a lot of decay in this mummy is that he was not quite dry when they buried him. It takes at least 40 days to dry out a human body for mummification. Um, you remove all the wet, gooey bits, the intestines, the stomach, the liver, the lungs. You pack the body inside and out with natron, uh, which is a naturally occurring substance, and you could mix your own at home. Try this at home. Um, half baking soda, half washing soda, so a cup of baking soda, a cup of washing soda, and a teaspoon of salt and you've pretty well got natron. Now you pack the body inside and out with that. It's deliquescent, it will draw the fat and the um, water out of the body, and you have to change the natron once a week, or it doesn't work. We know this from uh, Dr. Salima Ikram, you've probably seen her on TV. She did experiments with bunny rabbits, and she called them Flopsy and Mopsy. It was, you know, <laughs> it's terrible, um, but she learned a lot from it. And one she, thing she learned was that you have to change the natron once a week. And if you're a king, they probably give you fresh stuff. 
uh, every time. And in about 40 days, the body will be completely dry. And at that point, you can start washing it out and uh, putting on makeup and getting it all ready and wrapping it up and saying all the prayers. Um, but the, it does look as though King Tut was not quite dry. Now, why wouldn't you wait? He's a king of Egypt. Why wouldn't you do it exactly right? So there, there are a number of experts who say they were in a hurry. Something was going on here that they were in a hurry. And maybe he was not smelling as good as he should have. A mummified body smells a bit like a dentist's office, a properly mummified body. But if he was still a little ripe, is that why they poured all this nice smelling resin on his body? We will never know the answer to this, but it is a very odd thing. Here is the first autopsy, autopsy by committee. Uh, Douglas Derry is the man leaning down, uh, making the first incision in the, rapids, in the wrappings. Uh, Salabe Hamdan is the other physician. He's the man who's looking out at the camera. And also present, the uh, man on the far left with the white beard, that's Lacau, who was the head of the antiquity service at the time. Howard Carter behind him. Uh, be, uh, you can see him leaning into the, the ca case. And behind him, the man with the mustache, is a man named Lucas, uh, who was an engineer and um, chemist, pardon me, a chemist. And uh, he did a lot of the chemical work on King Tut's tomb. Uh, very, very interesting man. His, his book on ancient Egyptian materials and industries is still a book that everybody needs, everybody in my line of work needs. Uh, anyhow, first autopsy, 11th of November, 1923. Uh, they unwrapped the lower legs first, and there are photographs of that if you, if you want to see them. Um, Howard Carter's book, there's a couple of his books in the bookshop, and you might, they might even be in there. Um, his private parts were present and accounted for at the time, which I knew you'd want to know about. Um, <laughs> And not only present and accounted for, but cheerful, if you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> um, now, there was a very ragged embalming incision, and it was going straight from his hip to his belly button. Now, that's very unusual. The embalming incisions are always uh, vertical, and they are sort of in line with your hip. And they move around a little bit, some lower, some higher. But nobody else has an embalming incision right here. So there's all kinds of things about King Tut's funeral that nobody else had. Um, his arms are unique. Kings are buried like this. He's buried like this. And then, of course, there's his father who's buried like this. Are they telling us something? Is there something going on here we don't know? Is there some language of gesture that we're missing? Yeah, there's something we're really missing. Uh, however, by November the 16th, which is five days later, the body of King Tut had been dismantled to allow its removal from the coffin. Remember, it's really stuck in there. And it's kind of like the Christmas turkey that's stuck to the pan. And you can't lift it out in one piece. And the drumsticks stay behind and the wing. That's <laughs> what happened. Now, apart from that, uh, King Tut's mummy does not look good. You've seen the pictures outside. And he's a pathetic looking creature. Um, why does he look so much worse? than some other royal mummies. There are mummies who look worse than he does. But look at these. These are uh, mostly members of his family. Uh, the young boy up there is probably his uncle, uh, who should have been king instead of Akhenaten. Um, the man in the middle there, who looks very, very noble, uh, that is a man named Yuya. Uh, his wife's stuff is upstairs. A lot of their stuff is upstairs in the show. Um, uh, Yuya is King Tut's great-grandfather, for sure. Um, over on this side, a man named Mahiperi, who was a friend of King Tutmosis IV and uh, died uh, as a 20-year-old man. We have no idea why. Beautiful-looking fellow. Uh, the man down in the middle uh, with the color and the red hair, that is uh, Tutmosis IV, 
who apparently looks most like King Tut of all the mummies. And then over on the far side, the other color mummy is King Seti I, who is still obviously an incredibly handsome man. Um, so these guys are still all looking really good. And you get some sense of what they must have looked like alive. You don't get that from Tut at all. Uh, there is the first picture we have, the earliest picture of King Tut's face. Uh, his eyeballs had not been replaced. They had simply dried up, and they were still in the sockets. Uh, you could see Carter had left some jewelry on, a cap, a beaded cap. Uh, you can see his mouth a little bit open. Uh, King Tut was buck-toothed. Uh, most of the 18th Dynasty royal family um, had very prominent front incisors. Uh, we would call them buck-teeth. Um, nice lot, but this, this was a family uh, note, uh, a family uh, characteristic. Uh, you can see the beautiful gold mask on the other side. Now, that head was inside that mask, and it was stuck in there. Now, Carter has got the body in pieces, so he's now got the mask with the head inside. How's he going to get it out? Now, he had tried a few things before he resorted to tearing the body apart. Um, when he realized the problem he was in, he had taken the, the, this solid gold coffin outside in the Valley of the Kings, where it gets really, really, really hot in the middle of the day, and he had suspended it, and he had suspended the top of the coffin and hoped that the weight of the bottom would just pull it down eventually, and that it would, you know, that the, the resins inside would melt. It didn't work. But uh, you've got to realize then that this body was outside in a slow, well, not even a slow cooker, eh? a, a Romertoff, um, for many, many, many days in temperatures that were over 100 degrees. What was happening to that body inside? The vernacular is cooking, I think. Um, so it, this is not a nice thing. This, the, the blackness you see of the skin, and we talk about the carbonization of the skin, and it was due to all this stuff being poured on the body. Well, maybe, but maybe it was also due to all that stuff being poured on the body and then sitting out in 100-degree weather for a few days. Um, that will cook a turkey for you, I'm sure. And it, I think, cooked poor old King Tut. Uh, to get his head out of the mask, um, Carter was worried about how he would have to do it, and he said he used hot knives. Uh, Carter said a bucket and a half of resins and ointments had been poured over the body. He tried to use the solar heat to soften the dried resins. Is this why they were uh, carbonized? And the head was stuck so firmly that Carter feared it would require a hammer and chisel to free it. Hot knives were eventually used. All the books say hot knives. <laughs> What's a hot knife? Would you use a hot knife to get the turkey out of the bottom of the pan? I don't know. Um, uh, many people have suggested by hot, ni hot knife is a euphemism for a blowtorch. And that would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Uh, and Carter says in his report that Tutankhamun's beautiful and well-formed features were revealed. I remember reading this as a kid, and I think the book I was reading went on to say, or I interpreted to say, that you know, he had looked beautiful when they took the mask off. He looked just like the mask, but he didn't look at all like the mask. Um, and how could he after all this? Now, there is King Tut's mummy, uh, in all kinds of pieces. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, thirteen pieces. Um, and since uh, it was dismembered, it has always been in the Valley of the Kings in a tray of sand. So the pictures of you see in the old pictures of him lying there, he's in a tray of white sand, and they've just sort of put all the bones in the right position. 
but he has been completely disarticulated. Um, most of his hip bones are missing. Most of the pelvis is missing, and nobody's quite sure when that happened or why. And you can see uh, there in the color picture Dr. Hawass uh, in the Valley of the Kings in King Tut's tomb with the sand tray with the poor little blackened body inside of it. Now, um, there have been many uh, x-rays of King Tut in 19, uh, I think this is the 58 x-ray uh, by Dr. Harrison of Liverpool. I'll have the date, I'm sure, in a minute. Um, he saw that little bone that you see as well, I'm sure, this little bone up here, and he noticed some broken bone down here, and he said, hmm, damage. He also saw this and said, that looks to me like a subdural hematoma. Now, I don't know if it looks like that to you. Um, what it is is resin that's been poured into the skull and has hardened, and there's some more of it up here. So it's definitely not anything like a subdural hematoma. And these two bones are kind of odd, because if they had been smashed, if the head had been smashed and those bones were loose, well, then when the brain was removed and this guck was poured in, they would have been stuck in the guck. So this had to have happened after he was dead and, in fact, after he'd been mummified. So that should have been game over immediately for the whole he was hit on the back of the head and murdered uh, school of thought. But that one won't go away. Uh, there's another, a more modern x-ray of the same thing, a very, very fine one. A careful examination of the skull cavity did reveal the presence of two loose bones, and although these came not from the cranium, as some believe, but from the neck, more specifically from the fractured cervical vertebra and the form of magnum. Uh, they, and remember, Carter had to take the head off. So the form of magnum is the hole through which your spinal cord goes up into your brain. So that's what would be broken. Um, they are thought to have been dislodged by the embalmers during the mummification process, most probably when a second entrance was sought in which to pour the embalming fluid. They had poured some in the nose. Uh, now, here are some interesting pictures about how these dam this damage got done. Um, the head, in order to be photographed, Howard Carter put a stick on it so that it would stand up nicely so you could take good pictures. Uh, look where the... Uh, Stick is going. You want a hole in the back of somebody's head? That's how to do it. Um, notice that all the skin on the back of the uh, uh, vertebrae here came off when it was removed from the uh, mask. So looking pretty nasty. But the small mystery that I allude to here is this. There's a very large lesion on Tut's left cheek. Look at that, quite nasty. Um, and they think it's the result of uh, some injury before he died, but it was healing when he died. But there's a little mystery. So there is a mystery here. Um, here's another mystery. Um, why did Howard Carter have to do that to King Tut? Why couldn't he have just left him in the coffin? I mean, curiosity is one thing. Uh, why did he have to take off all the jewelry? Uh, we've all seen this jewelry. It's pretty nice stuff. Um, why did he take it off? Why didn't he leave this on the boy to protect him into the next life? Well, Howard Carter had already had an interesting experience with the mummy of King Amenhotep II, who was found in his own tomb in the Valley of the Kings and was left in his own sarcophagus in his own tomb. And the light you see shining on him was Howard Carter's idea. He installed electric lights in the tomb so that visitors to the Valley of the Kings could, uh, after a very, very long descent, could actually see the mummy by electric light. And there was a really special thing about him. See, he's quite a nice-looking mummy. Uh, Menotep II was one of the tallest people in his family. Uh, his mummy was six feet tall. 
So that would suggest that in life he was even a little bit bigger than that. Um, he is the grandson, the, the son of King Tutmosis III, if you know who these people are. Um, very interesting man. Very, very tall, incredibly athletic, and very strong. Um, he loved rowing. And he says that he could outrow anybody in Egypt. Why not? He's the king. Let him outrow you. Um, not only that, he claimed that he could, from a moving chariot, fire his bow and shoot four arrows into a, a, that would go through a bronze target. Now, uh, somebody at U of T tried this a few years ago, and he couldn't do it. On the other hand, was he a king? <laughs> um, you know, how, had he been practicing? Um, so I don't, I don't doubt that he could do it. Uh, you know, real sportsmen can do this kind of thing. And he was a real sportsman. He also said that no one else could actually draw his bow. And if you think that he is a good six inches taller than anybody else in Egypt, this would make very good sense to me. Um, and the bow was in his coffin. The bow was right there. It had been buried with him. And so Howard Carter had left it there. So up till for about five or six years, you could go in and look down and see the bow. 1911, one night, there's a robbery. Carter comes in the next day. Actually, Carter wasn't there. Weigel was. The body's on the floor. The bow had been stolen. So somebody in Europe, somebody in Switzerland, has that bow in a vault somewhere. I hope it will turn up someday. Uh, the body, body was not harmed, which is the good thing. But uh, Carter realized that you couldn't leave anything in the valley or it would get stolen sooner or later. And he said that since he wanted to leave the mummy in the valley, the only way he could keep the king safe was, in fact, to take off all the gold, to take off anything that anybody would want to steal to make him not worth robbing. That's what he says. Uh, now, here is the body lying in the uh, sand tray. Um, yeah, this is a 1926 photo, and a very, very nice photo, too. And I want you to notice how different he looked in 1926. He still had eyelids. Uh, he had a beaded skull cap. He actually still has ears, although you can't see them here. The ears are gone. He has clavicles. Uh, he has a rib cage. And Carter actually left this mass of beads, this collar, and some of these other beads on the body because it wasn't worthwhile taking them off. These are just beads. Leave them there. He thought nobody is going to bother the mummy for this stuff. So in 1926, there's the head of the mummy. You can see the uh, beaded cap on the mummy there. This is to disguise how bad it is. It's in cotton batten. This is 1968. The skull cap is gone. The band is gone. The eyelids are gone. The ears are gone. Theoretically, between 1926 and 1968, nobody had touched the mummy. In fact, there was a robbery during the Second World War, and the beaded skull cap and the beads on the chest were stolen. So even though Carter thought he had left him safe, uh, when World War II came along and people were busy with other things, there was another robbery. There he is now, and you notice no eyelids, no ears, the body in much worse shape, and no sign of the headband. Um, now, there's that um, uh, mass of beads again. There's the 1968 x-rays of the chest. And by 1968, the whole front of the rib cage is missing. Because whoever went in there to steal that necklace obviously did not have time to sit there and pick the beads out one at a time. Uh, got a very sharp knife of some sort. Some people suggest it was a real surgical instrument. And lifted the front of the rib cage off. Uh, it's probably at this time, too, that part of the pelvis was removed. 
Um, so all the theories about King Tut, my theories that I like, falling out of the chariot and having his chest crushed by the horses, didn't happen. Uh, his chest was there when he was mummified. Uh, you can see here is the, 19, the 2005 CAT scan, and you'll notice no clavicles, and the front of the rib cage is missing. So kind of sad that even these little, he was still not left in peace after all that time. Uh, so is that the end of the chariot accident theory? Well, no. Uh, the latest uh, CAT scan has shown there is a fracture of the left knee, uh, just above the, the, the thigh bone, actually, of the femur there, and there was embalming material in it, and they thought that it must have occurred just before death. Now, people who can read, and perhaps there's probably people in the audience who are really good at reading x-rays, people who can read x-rays get into fist fights about this one, whether or not that embalming fluid was there before or after death. But if you fell out of a chariot or fell anywhere and got a really nasty break in the leg like that, I think that would do it. Uh, uh, especially if you were kind of a sickly kid to begin with, as we now know he was. Uh, so the first uh, autopsy showed that he was clean-shaven, he had pierced ears, he was 5 foot 6. Uh, the mummy was 1.63 meters, which I think is 5 foot 4 and a half. So a little taller than that. 5 foot 6, that's tall for an ancient Egyptian. Average height was more like 5 foot 3 for men. Um, the growth plates in his bones suggested that he was 18. Most studies since then have agreed he's 18. Um, the people who looked at his teeth, Dr. James Harris of Michigan said from the teeth he would have said 25. But nobody's willing to go over 25, and most people think uh, 20. Third molars had not yet erupted, but many of us, they don't erupt. Um, and there was no cause of death determined by Dr. Derry at the first autopsy. Second autopsy is R.J. Harrison of Liverpool. He confirmed all of Derry's findings. He noted the absence of the sternum and ribcage by this point. He ruled out TB as a cause of death. Um, that had been considered, because he's a pretty skinny little guy, and he noticed the bone fragments in the skull, and he set off the whole bash in the head theory. But we have now found some interesting stuff from the new CAT scans and the DNA uh, that King Tut had really lousy feet. Uh, there's a whole lot of images of him leaning on a cane uh, or sitting in places where a king is usually standing, and it's probably because he had very painful feet. Uh, the left foot is inwardly rotated. The right foot has a low arch. There's a necrosis of the bone at the left metatarsal head, so the, which causes the foot to kind of co collapse, left foot. Um, and what he's got is what's called Kohler disease. Um, and you can look that up on the internet, and they'll show you lots of pictures of how this looks. And it usually starts off in little boys. It's something you usually find in, in kids who are nine-ish. And only boys, apparently, or almost exclusively boy, boys. So he would have had a hard time walking, and that might have made it easy for him to get that fall and that break. It may have also made it very pleasant for him to be in a chariot rather than trying to walk anywhere. And it's interesting that Carter found 130 canes in the tomb, some of them very, very fancy. 18-year-old uh, boys don't walk around with canes unless they need to. So interesting stuff. Here's some keen observation. There's that pretty picture again of Tut and Ankhesenamun and him leaning on a cane in a garden. No reason for him to be leaning on a cane. Here he is again walking. There's the cane, and the feet look really odd in this picture. And up here, I don't know if you can see this one very well. It was the only shot I could get of it. This is Ankhesenamun, and she's handing her husband arrows. There's the arrow in her hand. He is shooting, and he is sitting down. 
So he's gone hunting in the marshes, but he is not striding through the marshes like a proper Egyptian man. He is sitting down to do his hunting. Um, so we, this perhaps really suggests that this is a guy who could not walk very well. And there's something really pathetic and sad about this image, because uh, in ancient Egyptian, the word sti, which is the word to shoot a bow and arrow, is also the word to impregnate. So when she is handing him an arrow, once again, she is saying, let's make babies. Uh, and uh, we also now find out that he had malaria, malaria and perhaps particularly nasty strain of it, uh, the Plasmodium falciparum. Uh, several of his relatives had malaria. This is now confirmed the oldest cases of malaria. Up till now, the oldest malaria case was a gentleman, who, a young boy, who uh, is at my museum, uh, knocked, and he died about 3,100 3, years ago. Yeah, 3,100 years ago. Um, King Thet beats him by a couple hundred years. And if you remember the famous gold throne, look at that image. Again, he is sitting down, and she is patting his shoulder and rubbing something on him. Uh, this is a girl who is not just married to her younger brother, but perhaps has to be his nurse. Uh, a couple of quick things, uh, taking a little longer than I expected. Um, these are mummies who were found in a tomb called KV-35, uh, and they had no names. They were found on the floor, no coffins, no wrapping, nothing. These were people whose names had been stripped from them, just like that mummy uh, in KV-55 that we talked about. And you can see there's uh, a woman with lots of hair. Uh, all kinds of people say the Egyptians all shaved their heads. No, they didn't. Uh, a young boy with a great long sidelock of youth, a woman who does have her head shaved, and a younger woman. Um, now, are these people relatives? Yes. We know King Tut. We know a few people now, and we are now quite certain that this lady, there she is, here she is now, uh, is Queen T, King Tut's grandmother. And that's kind of nice. We've always suspected it. A lock of her hair was in his tomb in this little mummified case. It doesn't exactly say a gift from grandma, but it does have Queen T's name on it. The hair matches, her face matches another woman who was found in her own tomb. We've got another member of the family. This is nice. Uh, here is somebody else we've got. We now have King Tut's mother. This is the young woman from that tomb. A lovely face. Is this Nefertiti? Some people think it is. Um, is it somebody named Mary Totten? Is it Kia? We know that whoever it was, according to the latest DNA, is a full sister of King Tut's father, Akhenaten. So he has only one set of grandparents for birthdays, a bad thing. Very good reason to avoid incest. But um, <laughs> the really sad thing here, and, and, and I shouldn't be joking about her, see this damage to her face. This is not something that happened after she died. This woman was killed by somebody smashing her in the face so hard that it killed her. It broke her nose, it smashed through, and this is what killed this woman. Now this is a young, beautiful woman. This is King Tut's mother. So King Tut wasn't murdered, but his mother was. So if you want some chaos, here's your chaos. Imagine being that little boy and knowing that everybody hates your father because he was kind of weird, and that your mother has been murdered. This is a very strange way to grow up. Also in the uh, tomb, in the treasury, these two little boxes here. Inside them, little coffins. Inside the coffins, tiny little babies. Uh, this little child, they think, probably maybe was born, but born dead. Still birth, 
probably nine months. This little child, maybe five months. Some people say seven months. Uh, sad little creatures. Dr. Hawass here is examining them. There's what one of them looks like now. Sad little creatures. And the x-rays show uh, that these kids had all kinds of congenital problems, which is probably why they did not go to full term. The DNA now proves these are both King Tut's children by his sister. So Anke Sanamun, his older sister wife, did manage to get two of those arrows into the right spot. So here's the family tree that we've got now. Uh, because of all the DNA, because of all these different uh, strains of thought, we're trying to bring some order into this chaos, and we've got some people pretty sure, and uh, more and more of these relationships will be assured. Now, I want to just say two more things before I finish up, because uh, I'm going over my time a bit. So far, we've been looking at King Tut's body. Uh, we looked at a few little things that hint at his relationship with his wife. Uh, an odd relationship, not one most of us would choose, and yet one that seems to have been one of love and affection. Uh, we've seen a relationship with his father. What was it like to be that man's son? Uh, what was it like to be the son of a murdered mother? What was it like to be a teenage boy expecting to be a father, thinking you're finally all grown up, and neither of these two children living? and the disappointment and sadness in your sister wife. Um, all these things must have had an effect on him. Uh, and although there were no texts found in his tomb, on those big golden shrines that were around his coffins, there are fascinating texts. Uh, look at this weird thing. They call this an enigmatic book of the underworld. And um, it's weird, uh, but I don't know what it means. Uh, but this is an attempt to say what's happening in the next life, and is very different from what's gone before. And it shows that people, after this interlude of pseudo-monotheism, are saying, okay, so how does the universe work? How do the gods work? What does happen after you die? Do you really need to be mummified? What goes on? Do you have an afterlife? Where is it? Is it up in the sky with the sun god? Is it down on the earth? Where are you going? And this is an interesting thing. This is first seen in his tomb. It's called the Book of the Golden Cow. And the questions it asks is, how does evil enter the world? Why do the gods allow evil? And will chaos overcome Ma'at? In this story, the king, the king of the gods, Ray, grows old. And as he's old, he drools a bit. And uh, people see him walking with a cane and drooling. And the human beings say, ah, he's nothing now. Let's take him. Let's have a rebellion. And they rebel against him. And Ray sends his daughter the beautiful goddess of love, Hathor, sends her to Earth, and she turns into a raging lioness and kills all the bad people. And this story has all kinds of wonderful things. This story goes on and on. You have to go read it sometime. But at the end of the story, because of the evil of human beings, because they did not respect the gods when the gods grew old, the gods withdraw into the sky on the back of a golden cow. And now we're on our own, and we have to try and get order out of chaos by ourselves. Here is a prayer from the early years of King Tut's reign. There's a prayer of a man named Pawa to the god of moon. This is also evidence. This is evidence for what was going on in people's minds and hearts while all these strange events were happening. My wish is to see you, O Lord of Persia trees. May your throat take the north wind, that you give fullness without eating and drunkenness without drinking. My wish is to look at you, that my heart might rejoice. O oh, Amun, protector of the poor man, you are the father of the one who has no mother and the husband of the widow. Pleasant is the utterance of your name. It is like the taste of life. It is like the taste of bread to a child, 
a loincloth to the naked, like the taste of cucumber on a hot day. These are people who really believed in their gods and who were looking for some way out, some way of making sense of this world. And you know this picture from the tomb of King Tut. There is his grandfather eye opening the mouth of his mummy. Imagine having to bring your grandson, go to, to officiate at your grandchild's funeral. There's tragedy for you. There's chaos. There's something that is not the right order of things. But what he says to him is, your mouth is open again. You can speak. And in all the ways we've been talking about tonight, through all the kinds of evidence we've been looking at, these people are speaking to us again, and we are really listening to them. And I think it's a really nice relationship. Thank you so much for listening to me. Now, folks who uh, need to go and see the hockey game should leave. Uh, but we can do questions. We can have as many questions as you like if you're tired of hockey. Could we have the lights up? <laughs> Don't know the score. Does anybody know? We have two microphones either side. So if you want to put your hands up to ask questions. All right. We don't know, um, and it's a very interesting question. Um, the question was, is this woman Kia? Because up till now, we've all assumed that a woman named Kia was King Tut's mother. Um, Kia never says she's a king's daughter. A king's, king's daughter is a very important title, like you know the princess royal. If she was a king's daughter and a king's sister and a king's wife, you'd think Kia would tell us that. But she just says she's the king's greatly beloved wife. So. For, for an Egyptologist who is sensitive to the titles, he would say, if she's not calling herself a king's daughter, she cannot be Akhenaten's full sister, therefore she cannot be King Tut's mother, unless we're not reading the DNA right, unless we're not being careful enough here. So I think there's still room for a question, but it would suggest that Kia was not his mother. Weird. Good question. Uh, King, Ta uh, King uh, Akhenaten, King Tut's father, had at least six sisters. Uh, one is Princess Satamun. Uh, there's a Princess Neb. Oh, I've forgotten. There's an Ast. But anyway, there's six of them, at least. So any one of them. My, 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 my money's on Satamun. But I've been wrong so far all night, so why not one more time? Tell us about Carter hanging the coffin in the sun and prying the body out. From our perspective of 2010, yes. is it horrific? Are you forgiving of what happened? Are you, you know, how do you look at what went on 100 years ago or a little less? Yeah, it's, it's really a good question. Uh, Carter was a very, very careful Egyptologist. He really wanted everything known. He got as many experts as he could. Uh, he got Dr. Derry to do the autopsy. Derry was the best man he could have. He has uh, Dr. Lucas there to look at all the materials. Uh, he has Alan Gardner reading this, the uh, text for him. He's got all the best people with him. And I think they were all just really shocked at this very weird burial. Um, other people were not buried this way. There are other burials that were found intact. 
including King Tut's uh, grandfather, Yuya, and his grandmother, Tuya, are almost intact. And they were not buried with all this guck. So I think nobody was expecting this. They thought they would get that last coffin open, and you know he'd be lying there in his white linen, and they'd just take it off. When they were faced with this, um, they have the whole world watching them, and the whole world is saying, so what's going on? And I think they just, they worked too fast. I don't know if they had any options. Uh, nowadays, you know, you would take it to Cairo and you'd sit on it for 10 years and you'd think about it. But I don't, I don't know if that was an option for them. Right back there. <laughs> My question is, is given that there was such an odd burial of King Tut, are there any theories that he was in fact infested with some type of disease that they knew at the time and were afraid that if his body wasn't entombed very quickly? Now, now there's an, an interesting thought. Nobody I, that I know of has suggested that, and I think that's cool. Um, now, I don't think you can ca you can't catch malaria from a dead body, I think. The doctors and nurses in the room might know. I can't imagine. If you had a dead body, so somebody who died of virulent malaria. No. no so that wouldn't work. So, but, but you might not know that. Interesting thought. Yeah. No, it's a very, and, and there is a plague going on at this time. Uh, when King Tut dies, there's a plague of, some people think influenza, some people think bubonic plague. But there is a plague going on. A really nasty, virulent plague is happening all over the Middle East. And, uh, you know, whatever it was, it was really very, very serious and deadly. So, but that's, an, you know, interesting, because they might not have known that they couldn't catch it. You know, if he got a very particularly virulent strain and died really fast, who knows? Uh, sounds good to me. <laughs> we, have to, we have to put it past the medical people in the audience, see what they think of it. Gail, I'm yeah. curious about yes. something. I worked on the African gallery upstairs, and we have oh, a couple yeah. of reliquaries, and we have a grave marker. I was very happy that there weren't any human remains in the reliquaries. And, and, it, you know, and it feels odd to me to have a grave marker up there that whoever's grave mm -hmm. it was marking wasn't expected it'd be on display in an art gallery. So um, it's interesting looking at these. I mean, it's completely riveting and mm -hmm. fascinating. But is there any sort of ethical dilemma here with having these bodies on display? Uh, certainly a lot of people think there's an ethical dilemma. And I'm, I'm with you on the grave marker. I find that very disturbing. Um, the ancient Egyptians used to say to speak their name is to make them live again. Now, if you've been hidden away for 3,000 years and nobody's spoken your name and nobody's wished you, uh, their prayer for the dead is, may you be given bread and beer which is so much more friendly than ours. Um, now everybody, every time you say his name, he's there, he's breathing again, he's alive again. Um, this is what they wanted in a funny way. You know, always watch what you wish for. They wished not to be forgotten. They have not been forgotten. They wish to have their names read. We are reading their names over and over and over again. They wish to have us think about them and offer things to them, and they're getting their wish. So in a funny way, while I would not agree with it for all ancient peoples or all modern peoples, for these people, in a very, very weird way, they're getting exactly what they wanted. So it's very important for us to get their names straight because it was very important for them to get the names straight. Uh, when when uh, a body was robbed, if, they, if the priests who rewrapped the body and reburied it couldn't find the name, they would leave the coffin blank 
rather than, say, John Doe. So interesting stuff. Names were very important to them. And finding their names again, uh, they're all blessings, Ahiawas, for finding their names, for sure. I'm very interested in Akhenaten. You know, he looks so strange. Yes. Now, I've seen TV programs that say he did have a particular disease. Now, Tutankhamun, by all that we know, looks fairly normal. And I was wondering if, you know, his babies died and they were certain, you know, was there an actual disease? Do we know that? Or does he just look strange like some of us do when we get older? <laughs> well, of course, Akhenaten dies before he's 40, so he has no excuses. Um, some statues of Akhenaten look perfectly normal, and some look, as you say, quite bizarre. Um, and, you know, there's this funny position of the burial. A lot of his statues look like he is saying, I am the mother and father of my country. He has himself depicted with very wide hips, you know, sort of exaggeratedly female features. And, and gynamastica up here, and you think, what are you trying to say? Are you saying, you know, I am all the gods. You don't need those other gods. I'm all of them. You know, I'm the goddesses, I'm the gods, I'm everything. Um, now, that's possible. Now, one problem is, of course, that his body is just a skeleton. So you can't check and see if he really did have that weird shape. You know, did he really have breasts like a woman, as he seems to have? Um, King Tut's ribcage is missing. So we can't say anything about what his chest was like either. So we don't know. There's all kinds of stuff we just don't know. Uh, I think most of it is artistic license, or, or not even artistic license, because the king has to say, this is how I want to be portrayed. So for the king to say, this is what I want, um, he is making some kind of statement, like the famous Cleopatra, eh, on her coins, is not the prettiest thing in the world. And she is definitely saying, make me look like my dad. Show them I've got my dad's nose, craniofacial morphology. Uh, she wants us to know that. So he's telling us something with this weird body, but exactly what? You know, and his wife, Nefertiti, has six kids. Um, and you can see, you know, most pictures, you know, if you've got six kids, you try to stand up a little straight. You know, most of us don't say, hey, this is the body of a woman who has had six kids, but Nefertiti is saying, hey, six kids. <laughs> okay, yes, yes, those are hips that have had six kids. They're up to something, and we don't know what it is, I think. This is why they're so fascinating, these people. It's all mysteries. There's another one in the room, Karen. Karen is asking about uh, the name. King Tut's name was changed. As a little boy, his name was Tut Anka Aten, uh, which means the living image of the Aten, his father's god. And it was changed to Tut Anka Amun, living image of the god Amun, the god to whom that prayer was addressed. His wife was uh, Ankisen Amun. Uh, she lives in, or she lives for the god Amun. She started off life as Ankisen Paaten. She lives for the Aten. Um, and I think there are things in the tomb that have the old name. I can't remember any at the moment, uh, but there are lists and lists of everything in the tomb. Uh, and you, you, that's something you could find out pretty easily. I'm quite certain they are in the tomb. And I think on the back of the golden throne, the names are the old names. But the, the, the old names are, are around. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, about this poor lady, um, there are other people's names in King Tut's tomb, especially a girl named ne Meket, um, Mary Totten 
who was a daughter of Nefertiti, uh, and therefore a daughter of Akhenaten, and would have been his half-sister, aunt. Um, why did Meritaten put so many little things in his tomb? Is this Meritaten? Was she his mom? And there are funny little things of hers, like her, her, her we would say her, her coloring box, her little scribal palette with six little tablets of paint and the blue all used up. So, you know, what a strange thing to put in somebody's tomb, a little used up paint box. Why would you put it in unless it belonged to somebody very dear? So, but it's, it's just all so weird. It's very, very hard to tell what's going on. I have one more quick Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm fascinated with this whole business of, of the incest. And yes. Am I right in assuming it was just the royal families who married siblings and so on? Uh, pretty much, and, and not even all the royal families, of course. The idea is, I mean, with any royal family, you want to keep the money in the family yeah. so you don't marry too far. You don't want your daughter to marry some general who's going to take over the country. So that's why they keep it inside. But also in Egypt, um, the gods, uh, the primordial pairs of gods. You've got a pair of god, um, uh, Shu and Tefnut, moisture and uh, air, who are brother and sister. They give birth to Geb and Nut, the sky and the earth, who are, of course, brother and sister. They give birth to Isis and Osiris, the two most important gods for the afterlife, and also Nephthys and Sutech and Horus. So there's this, this divine tradition of incest. So if you are a king and you marry your sister, you are doing as the gods did. But um, with their rate of infant mortality, um, I think it was very rare for a king to actually have a sister he could marry. I don't think it happened as often as they would have liked it to have happened. Um, but sometimes it seemed to have worked just fine. Yeah, I'm just figuring, yeah. that, I mean, there must have been so much genetic abnormality, and I'm just thinking amongst the, the other, the regular people, was yes. there perhaps less genetic? They would never figure out, put two and two together. Well, well that sounds good, because usually when the royal family goes kaput, a general takes over, and there's usually somebody who says, hey, I'm a nobody. And you think, good for you, lucky for you. Um, this family has all kinds of genetic abnormalities. They've got a, there's a family tendency to cleft palate. There's a family tendency to uh, various foot abnormalities. Um, and the latest publications are really talking about this, that this is another way we can show that these people are related to each other. They, are, they have all the same kind of genetic disability, and I think it is um, the inbreeding that's doing it. Oh, a couple over there. Yes. <clears throat> Yes. Yeah, whatever, yeah. That is a very interesting question with Tut, because for Tut, that general, Horemhab, was actually the crown prince. Uh, because Tut had no children, I mean, he's only 19, but he has named his general Horemhab as the next king, officially. And Horemhab has the right titles to be the next king. However, he is not the next king. Granddad I is the next king. And many people suggest that Horemhab, being a general, is in fact out of the country. One of his titles is the king's voice in all the foreign lands. And we know that Horemhab fights little skirmishes, at least, if not full-scale wars, in both Nubia and Syria. Uh, some people have suggested that King Tut went with him on some of these and has some kind of injury or accident and dies. Very reasonable. Um, 
there's a, if you get the latest issue of archaeology, uh, Raymond Johnson, who's a very, very fine Egyptologist, argues that King Tut was a warrior, was a, you know, a reasonably tough 19-year-old. Maybe he had bad feet, but he's out there fighting. Uh, that certainly didn't stop an Egyptian uh, king from being on the battlefield, or queen, uh, that they were not in full health. So uh, Horemheb should have been the ru next ruler. I becomes ruler instead. After four years, I dies. He gets a reasonably nice tomb, and Horemheb takes over. Uh, somebody then goes into I's tomb and smashes it up. We don't know anything. <laughs> Very back. Um, what was it that Tutankhamun did to oppose his father in the One God? We, we don't, um, you know, when his father was alive, we assume he just said, yeah, Dad, whatever. Um, he was a nine-year-old boy. Uh, you know, he may have been very devout. Many little boys are very devout. Maybe he believed everything his father said and, and was waiting for the day when he could speak to the gods. We'll never know. Um, but this one god experiment had been really, really bad for Egypt, and, and that would take me... You have to be here last week to find out how bad it was, but it was very bad for the country. And King Tut has to restore the country, and one of the things he does is he has to build new statues of all the gods because his father has had them all melted down. The, the really sacred statues, you know, in movies, they're always 12 feet tall, but really uh, they were kind of Ken and Barbie-sized, but solid gold. And King Tut has to make new ones for every temple in the country, as well as the 12-foot ones. Uh, so a lot of his revenues for, the, for his reign go into restoring the temples, getting them back in order. He has to appoint, he has to give his own service from the palace, his servants. Uh, he gives them to the temples uh, to be the musicians in the temples because the Egyptian temples were full of singing and dancing. They must have been quite wonderful, lots of music in them. And that has to be all started up again. And yeah, as King Tut is a little boy, presumably it's really Horemhab and I, uh, he has to legislate all these things. And he also says, uh, not only will I give my servants to the temple to be the new singers and dancers, but I will pay their salaries. So his father's actions are costing the throne and costing the crown a tremendous amount of money. Did he go along with it or not? We don't know. He might have been really mad about the whole thing. Uh, you can imagine if your dad dies at nine, usually little kids are fanatically loyal to a dead parent. Um, by 19, you know, how angry is he about what he's been forced to do? Or has he decided, yeah, this is right. Does he love the god Amun now? It's all kinds of nice statues of him with Amun. And Amun's a nice god. I like Amun. Good God. So, I think, and another question up here? Are there well, and, and see, we're not even sure that's what it was. It, did the body, maybe the body was dried out and all that goo poured on it, rehydrated it a little. That's reasonable. Uh, was it maybe an oddly humid spring in Egypt and that's why it didn't dry out properly? Um, we just don't know. Um, the flowers suggest that um, it was a rather, sh well, it's hard to tell. Um, it would be nice to have more careful botanical um, evidence and have somebody really look at all the flowers and look at what we can tell about the timing from that. Could you maybe get a little closer to how long it was between his death and his mummification? Um, sometimes if a king died on campaign, uh, they can't do the whole mummification and they would just wrap him um, one king we know of was wrapped in, dry, in hot sand and brought back to the capital. And by the time they get him home, uh, he's a little far gone for the priest to do the proper mummification. 
something like that could have happened. He could have died, you know, out somewhere, and it could have taken them too long to get started. All these mysteries. And, you know, if you'd been there at the time with our modern equipment, you know, if you'd really had Bones and Gilgrissom there, um, maybe you could have found those things out. But Howard Carter did not have the capacity to do it, or Dr. Derry, or, or uh, Dr. Ha, I forget, Salim Bey. None of them had the, had, the, had the equipment to do that kind of thing. Oh, one more over there. Yeah. How did they figure out he had malaria? How did they know that? It was in the blood. They found the, uh, yeah. Yeah, they found it. So there was, and there was no question. They found the antibodies, I guess, is what they found. But they found it. And then apparently that's just a for sure. And they've been finding malaria in the whole gang. And it was probably endemic. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, have a very mild sort of malaria that they can just live with. And then you can also get the really nasty versions that will kill you. And he seemed, they think he had the nasty version. That, that they're asserting it as a, as a fact. That's not even, nobody's disputing that, that he had the, one of the worst kinds. Akhenaten, and it was showing family pictures. It was showing the daughters. I don't remember ever seeing one of Tutankhamun there. Never shows his sons, never. The only evidence, the only direct evidence, the, and I should have mentioned this, the only textual evidence that King Tut is Akhenaten's son uh, comes from a block uh, that was turned upside down and used in a Roman building at uh, Hermopolis. Uh, Ehnasia el Medina is the modern name of the place. And somebody finally flipped this block over, and it had a picture of uh, Tat and Ankhesenamun, or little parts of them, because it was just a block. And it actually says, uh, the king's son of his body and the king's daughter of his body. And her name is there, king's daughter of his body, Ankhesenamun, I think, and uh, king's son of his body. And King Tut's name is spelled funny. So it's not spelled Tut Ankhesenamun. It's spelled, uh, it's a, there's an extra syllable in there. And it could be just the guy couldn't spell. Um, I mean, this happens to us all. But that's the only direct evidence that says that, that he is the king's son of his body and she is the king's son of his body. And the only person, the only king who'd be, who could be the parent of both of them is Akhenaten. Uh, and it seems very often that Egyptian kings did not name a son because they might have had a lot of sons. Because it's kind of a lottery, you know, who's going to live? So I would imagine the kings try to have a fair number of sons, um, but they don't want everybody to know who is number one. You know, it's the guy in the Canada shirt is the number one son, because uh, that makes you an assassination uh, object, an object, uh, a target. It also means uh, all these other nasty people out here might come to you and try to get you to kill your father and take over the th throne. Um, so it's pro they seem to keep the sons a little out of the limelight, except for Ramses the Great, who puts all his sons in the limelight. He's proud of them. He loves his sons. He takes them everywhere. And when he dies and his 13th son dies, uh, there's a civil war because there are a whole lot of boys in Egypt who are his grandsons who are just as big and tough and smart as granddad, and they all think they should be pharaoh. Um, this is not a good thing. I mean, it was not smart. You referred to the uh, funeral banquet of eight people. I'm yes. wondering why there would be such a small number of people at a king's burial, and if eight was the normal number, and what types of people would these have been? Uh, uh, senior courtiers or priesthood? I think that is a terrific question, and we don't know. Um, 
the pictures in ordinary people's tombs, not in the tombs of kings, because kings don't have pictures like this, but the pictures in the tombs of artists will show every member of their family at the funeral banquet, probably even people who are dead and people who've you know, moved to Sudan or something, but they want everybody at this banquet, at least in theory. Now, King Tut, we think it's eight, uh, because a very smart guy um, who was the curator of the um, Egyptian department in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Herbert Winlock, he examined the material that was found in this pit that's called uh, KB-54, and uh, he sort of counted everything up. There were plates, there were cups, uh, there were leftover food, there was all kinds of stuff in it, and, uh, and there were these collars. And he said there were eight people at the banquet. Um, I would believe Herbert Winlock, but I, I'm, I have the same question you do, who are the eight? Um, one of the pictures from King Tut's tomb, and I don't have it here, um, we should move on from her, Ray, because she's so sad looking. Oh, that's sad looking, too. Let's get a happy one. There's a happy one. Um, uh, there is a picture of the men k pulling the funeral sledge, and um, one of them is Hormheb. He's named there, uh, and the two viziers of the country. So you think, you know, is it the wife? I. I's got to be there. Hormheb's got to be there. The two viziers have got to be there. There's five. Who are the other three? We'll probably never know. It's an interesting issue. Um, yeah, who knows? It's fascinating. Like, all these little things, we know so much about these people. You know, we've got their diaries, practically. And we know what they ate for lunch. And yet, you ask a question like that that seems simple and straightforward, not a clue. It's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. I think this is probably a very yes, good, good moment. Thank you. <laughs> Gail, I'd like to thank you so much. That was completely riveting. I could listen for another hour at least. So thank you so much. I heard that she was a very good speaker, and indeed she is. What else do you talk about? We'll, have to, we'll, ha <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have you back. I, I really, really enjoyed that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So next week we have two talks. We have Roberta Shaw on Wednesday evening, also from the ROM, talking about glamour and vogue. Um, so that will be fascinating. And by the way, if you're coming next Wednesday, normally we don't have the McCall Street entrance open, but next Wednesday we have all sorts of things going on in the building. We have openings, we have Giuseppe Pannoni talking. So there'll be a lot going on in the front. So we're going to open this McCall Street entrance just this once so that it's easier for you to come in. And then, of course, on Saturday, Zahi Hawass will be talking at Convocation Hall. And I understand that there are some, still some seats left. So that's uh, 7 o'clock in the evening, Convocation Hall. And we're selling the tickets through here. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay.